You're listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly. I'm the editor of Interzone and IZ Digital, its online sister zine. You can find out more about Interzone and subscribe at interzone.press and read stories, reviews and interviews for free at interzone.digital. Joining me on the show today is Premi Mohammed. Hello, Premi Mohammed. Thank you very much for, for coming on Interzone Pod. Hi, Gareth. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, we, we've spoken a couple of times before, um, before I was doing Interzone. And um, yeah, you've, you've done so much in the last couple of years. It probably looks like it. Yes, I'm very, very tired. <laughs> you're, 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 um, it, it seems that there's always a new Premier Mohammed story coming out. There was one even I saw today, uh, which, which I read a wonderful short story in uh, in Small Wonders. Uh, it has it has the sort of the science and it has the humour, um, the humanity, and it is kind of it it does it's a great example of your sort of gift for voice, which I think is always what draws me. The fact that this is the way that you can kind of inhabit these different voices. Oh, thank you very much. This is um, Im- imagine yourself happy. Yeah, I think a lot of people were a little um, were a little surprised by the story because of the title. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is kind of a brutal one, um, and uh, yeah, and, and the, you've got stories and anthologies. You've got stories coming out in different places, and I just sort of yeah, I, I imagine you must be very happy <laughs> with you know with everything that's going on. Yeah. It's always nice to uh, to have the stories come out, uh, to have them connect with people, to have people ping me afterwards to say, hey, I really liked that. Or, hey, there's something specific that you wrote about in there that is like something I've experienced. Like I had one come out, um, what was it, a couple days ago, I think, on Pseudopod, which was a reprint uh, called The Evaluator. Uh, which was initially published in an anthology. And someone contacted me to be like, you know, this really made me think of the time that I spent uh, in the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, you know, you captured the feel of it really well. And I was like, oh, thank you. I've never been there. <laughs> <laughs> that you, you just, yeah, you, you do a lot of good research and, and you're very good at lying, which is, um, yeah. <laughs> which, which is, which is the, the less kind way, I guess, to call fiction writing. <laughs> lying with research i don't know maybe lying with research on onto paper for money uh, artfully hopefully yeah you, you, no i, I <laughs> the you you um you, you also have lots of books on the way um and uh we'll come to those sort of like specifically what sort of one by one because <laughs> we do and we, we do have to kind of itemize them um you, you also have a, a recent short story collection which uh, no one will come back for us from undertow publications uh you have the the nick and johnny trilogy uh, beneath the rising a broken darkness and the void ascendant there's um i take a breath there's there's the novella and what can we offer you tonight from neon hemlock which won a nebula award uh there's also the annual migration of clouds from ecw press which won an aurora award um just yeah so many stories and uh i wonder like do, do you when you have your ideas initially do you always know how far how you know how far they can grow how, how far they can go and you know 
like, do you know that this is going to be a short story? Yeah, um, that's that's a good question. Uh, I was actually talking about this recently with a friend um, because I think it's taken some calibration. Uh, I have had previously found that stories that I thought were going to be short stories, you know, ballooned into a novel um, mm-hmm. or stories that I thought were going to be at best a novelette turning into a novella. But now it's a lot easier for me to figure that out kind of when I have the initial idea. And it's uh, it's kind of hard to explain, I guess, but it's almost like holding the idea in your hand and feeling kind of how heavy it is, <laughs> you know, like a, uh-huh. not exactly like a ripe fruit, but like a box with something in it and being like, you know, this is quite, this is quite heavy. This could be a novel or this is kind of medium weight. I think what this is going to have to be is a novella. And I, I'm getting pretty good at calibrating to novellas. You'll probably have noticed I've got um, three, possibly four novellas coming out next year and just one novel. So I'm really leaning into the novella form, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's not the most, you know, I guess, profitable form. But um, it's a length that I keep having ideas for. And sometimes I let my agent know that and sometimes I don't. <laughs> And and they are they are very happy to, to receive work in whatever form it is. I'm yes, sure. he's uh, he's been surprised by quite a few of them, but never anything less than extremely delighted and enthusiastic. Uh, like with uh, the Butcher of the Forest, which is coming out next year, um, I just kind of threw that at him and was like, "Hey, you know, there's an editor uh, at Tor that says he might like to read this. So if we're putting it out on sub, can he read it first? And his response was, where, where did this come from? I didn't know you were writing this. <laughs> <laughs> it just appeared. I'm so sorry. It was probably the fairies. <laughs> yeah. The, um, yeah. So you have, you have these novellas and then um, what was my next question? Um, in, in your, in your notes for, for the Redoubtables in um, No One Will Come Back For Us, you talk about sort of approaching the same idea from different perspectives and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, finding an approach that worked. Does, does that happen a lot? Is that part of sort of weighing things up in your hand that you're, you're sort of, you know, having to like test it in different sort of forms? Yeah, so sometimes, uh, not very frequently though, which I think is what really struck me about that story. Um, the way I usually end up writing stories, particularly short stories, is I have an idea first or just a couple of ideas that I want to smush together or a premise, kind of a what if question. Um, you know, what if mm-hmm. someone was doing the kind of research that you had to destroy instantly if it started to go wrong? And that meant destroying everybody that was working on it too. And that was considered reasonable. Um, so I usually start with the idea and then I ask myself, how best do I want people to receive this idea? And from that question, that's how I come up with the characters. Um, I, I usually don't start with characters. Most of my stuff doesn't start with the character. It starts with the idea. So for this one, I thought it would be fairly straightforward, but Mm -hmm. it just kept not feeling right or evoking the feelings that I wanted. Uh I wanted, I didn't realize, um, I wanted a certain amount of distance on it, on on what happened, and to take this obvious atrocity and have somebody investigate it, you know, later on, um, instead of in the moment or in the direct aftermath. And uh, I, I felt intuitively like that worked a lot better, and I enjoyed writing the story a lot better. And it sold on its first time out, which was nice. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. Oh, that, that is, that, that's a good sign. Um, talking about kind of ideas and having this sort of what if, you, you gave a really interesting sort of seminar or class on, uh, I forget the title, I think it was like putting the science into science fiction or... Oh, yeah. I, lo- I love teaching that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a really, a really interesting class about, you know, about research. And, and are you, uh, yeah, is that kind of how you're, you know, how you're looking at science news that you're sort of taking it and sort of asking always, you know, what, what you know, what is the storyable what if here? Oh, pretty often. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to find something and save it just, you know, like a pack rat, just hoarding it uh, for later articles or even just snippets of things, screenshots of things that end up uh, becoming part of a story later. That was kind of what happened with uh, today's story, Imagine Yourself Happy. It was just something that snagged on my mind, you know, like a like a fingernail on a sweater in a recent book I was reading, uh, an Ed Young book called uh, An Immense World, which is about kind of the, the sensorium of non-human animals and how we can try to approximate what they're experiencing with their senses, but we really can't because they've got senses we don't have and we've got senses they don't have. And, um, you know, we, we can't exactly explain what it's like to be a mantis shrimp. We can't see that way, that kind of thing. But I did, you know, I fixated on the idea that there are creatures out there with um, optical apparatus much, much quicker than ours. So it's probable that they would see a flash of light that we would not even know had happened. And then it just kind of turned into the story. Instead of being a flash of light, it's a flash of radiation from an alien creature. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, and it's great to have a piece of actual flash fiction mm-hmm. here. Here we actually have it. Yeah. It is a, a genuine flash. Yeah. It's, it's a piece of flash fiction with a flash in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and 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 yeah and you're talking about the animals you, yeah the, the sort of you're just a i mean technically just a without, without saying i mean without saying too much about it but the, the you know the, you mentioned the cat and you know there's all these little just just really kind of nice touches that that do a huge amount in a very very small you know word you know in in, in the word count which is yeah just just great oh thank you <laughs> Yeah, Flash is actually quite uh, quite tricky for me um, because, as you say, you know, everything has to do a lot of work. Uh, the shorter the story is, the more work every word has to do, every sentence has to do. You can't, you know, mm-hmm. walk around like you're in a novel and go off on tangents and have side quests and road trips and, and you know, day trips and whatever. Um, so I actually don't write a lot of Flash, and I'm surprised that this one ended up at Flash length. So that was kind of nice. Yeah, it, it's it's a what one writer mentioned it. Uh, was talking about sort of vignettes and how how one of her stories had been, I think, described it n- negatively, perhaps or maybe neutrally, as a vignette, more a vignette than a than a story. Mm. But I think that's I I don't. It, it it's interesting because like really good flash has a lot of story. Like you know that that story we're talking about there. Mm. There's a lot of story in in that right. So yeah. And that, I think it's often unfair to call Flash a vignette because that's by the kind of purists that are like, no, a, you know, a story has to have a plot and the plot has to look like this and it has to have this type of structure. Whereas with Flash, I think all those expectations should really be thrown out the window. I've read a lot of Flash that did appear to be an anecdote or a vignette and it worked yeah. perfectly as a story, even though it didn't have a traditional beginning, middle, end in terms of action. A Flash can just be one moment or or one memory or, or a prose poem, mm-hmm. if, if we want it to be. I don't think people should be judging Flash 
by short story standards, if that makes any sense. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that was also what we came, you know, during that discussion, um, one, one of the things that was said was, you know, sort of judging stories or reading stories on their own terms mm-hmm. rather than sort of bringing sort of exterior criteria to them. Uh, you know, the, in, in that wider discussion, I think there is often this, um, as, as you say, you know, people are measuring something with the wrong sort of, yeah, yeah with the wrong sort of tools, so to speak. And yeah, stories can work in all sorts of ways, right? Yeah. Um, you... There's there's a rev- you, you posted on Blue Sky um, part of a review of your forthcoming The Butcher of the Forest, which which is genuinely magical and magically told. It, like the, the, sort of the telling is really really for me was really really powerful, and 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 this review described it as having a flat fairy tale like quality, mm-hmm. and you posted that that was precisely the effect you were going for. Yes, I was delighted. Yeah, and I wondered if. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if you could sort of, yeah, sort of introduce Interzone listeners to to that, to that book, and also to that effect that you were going for. Oh, I can try. Uh, yeah, so The Butcher of the Forest is a novella that's coming out with Tor.com in February 2024. Uh, it's the story of Varys Thorne, who is a woman who a long time ago, and uh, for reasons we are not aware of at the start of the book, managed to rescue a child for the first time ever, probably in history, from the dangerous woods uh, in the north of her village. And now in this book, mm-hmm. she has been tasked by the tyrant who has colonized her, her village, her country, um, to rescue his children who have gotten lost in the forest. And she only has a day to do so. And if she doesn't, her her family, her village, her life, if she comes back out, are forfeit. So she's got a lot of motivation to attempt this rescue, but it's not that easy and it's not an ordinary forest. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a great comp for this, a really funny, but also very, very astute comp for this. Did you want to share it? Yeah. Um, a friend compared it to, I can't remember what, what theirs was, but uh, uh, mine, mine was um, Escape from LA meets uh, Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. And I, I don't think that's wrong. Uh, theirs was Hansel and Gretel meets, and I don't remember what, but you know, the, the basic gist is um, we have to go rescue, uh, you know, someone's child, but for, for, you know, several reasons, uh, we're not doing it voluntarily and we're not doing it even because we, we think it's sad and terrible that, uh, you know, kids are lost somewhere dangerous. We're also being coerced by a very dangerous person so it's also kind of the um you know the the anti-colonization talk i guess because you know the kids weren't responsible for all the the deaths and the war you know but does that mean still that you go get them or does it mean you you know defy the father by saying no i'm not going to do what you want or does it mean you preserve your own life and do what you're told or you know, I don't know what I would do in Varys' situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's very messy, um, which I guess is not adding to the fairy tale feel of it. But what I did want it to feel really intensely um, like an obscure fairy tale, like something you could actually tell if you wanted to in, you know, three or four paragraphs, like in a kid's book. And all I did was retell it, kind of, was the feel I wanted to have. It's a very vivid sort of retelling of this if it is if it is a retelling and i wonder sort of yeah how did that how did that voice come out 
Yeah, it's um this one just whipped out like a ripcord. Um starting from the day that I had the dream, uh, which I think I mentioned in the um in the tour announcement for it that this actually came out of a dream, which is, you know, people make fun of writers <laughs> for saying, Oh, I saw this story in a dream. But I think for a lot of us, we're not trying to recreate the dream in the story because dreams don't make narrative sense. Um, often we're just trying to capture right. the images or an image that we remember. Um, so from, you know, from the day that I had the dream to when it was done was something like three weekends, maybe like five ish writing sessions. Um, oh, wow. It felt very intuitive to, to tell it in that way with that, slightly formalized, slightly stiff fairy tale language that tells you that, you know, this is a fantasy and that this isn't contemporary and that we're getting just enough distance on the third person point of view to get into Varys's head, but not really see what anyone else is is thinking or or imagining or remembering unless they tell us. So yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it, didn't take a lot of uh, that. I could, this is going to sound bad. It didn't take a lot of writing. Um, I mean, it's not very long either. It, it didn't take a lot of writing. It did not take a lot of editing. And I was very pleased when um, you know when Tor acquired it and when Jonathan's editing um, was very light. Actually, he kept a very light touch on the manuscript. Um, he preserved all that language, um, you know, all the idiosyncrasies and the, the punctuation and the way people speak and the slightly unusual way that, that some of the characters speak, like the fox, um, which I was really pleased about. Like, I, I do want it to feel a little bit otherworldly because fairy tales happen in a world that is, you know, next to ours, but not ours. Um, another, okay, so <clears throat> another book coming out next year uh, is... Uh, that i know of um a week or two after the butcher of the forest is the siege of burning grass yeah i'm still reading this one i'm enjoying it oh, thank you. and the blurb describes it as a, a stunning meditation on war nationalism violence and courage which is a lot uh, particularly right now and um yeah what what can you tell listeners about the siege of burning grass and also about what that book means to you oh yeah yeah, this this is kind of a weird, heavy one, especially, yeah, uh, talking right now uh, with what's happening in Gaza and with the Ukraine-Russia conflict still going on. Um, a couple of months before I was due to hand in that manuscript was when the Ukraine-Russia conflict started. And I just I found myself thinking, my God, I'm writing a war novel during a war like this. I'm not enjoying this. This doesn't feel good. <laughs> like this, hmm. it, uh, it felt like writing a plague novel during a plague. <laughs> and, uh, right. Yeah, also something I didn't want to do. But um, yeah, the, the idea for this one kind of came out of, uh, I just, I had this idea of a pacifist during a war who is tasked with some non uh, some non-jail punishment. And literally that's all the idea was at the start. And I kind of ah. sat with it for a while. To me, it felt novel scale. It felt almost Russian novel scale to the point where I thought, well, if I write this, I'm going to have to cut it back from 350,000 words because that's how much this is going to be. But I thought, you know, this doesn't have to turn into Tolstoy. Uh, if I keep the focus 
on this pacifist mm-hmm. and and just keep the orbitals around him about the war, um, then maybe it will be a reasonable sized novel. And and again, my editor, uh, David Moore at Solaris, uh, really thought so as well. Uh, he really loved the book, which again, you hope so because he's your editor. But um, you know, again, he uh, he kept a very light touch on it. He wanted it to kind of sound the way it sounded to to be the way it was. So this book uh-huh. is about that pacifist, uh, Alivret, who is um, bombed, it looks like accidentally, by friendly fire, wounded very severely, um, locked up for being a traitor uh, to his own side, for, for resisting the war, for protesting the war, for not helping the war effort, and is offered his freedom in exchange for escorting another soldier, a fanatic, actually, uh, to one of the enemy's last strongholds in order to overtake it and therefore cause their surrender and end the war. And it almost but not quite works out like that. But, you know, this goes against all his principles. But again, it's another case where I guess there's a thematic similarity to The Butcher of the Forest, which is uh, a person who has proven that they are good at something is just asked to do that thing again and again, even if they don't want to. <laughs> um, and, and this is, uh, th- th- this is, this is novel length. This is, um, I think the page count is 430 or something. Uh, yeah, this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's 109,000 words or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and so sort of wor- world building for the tour one versus world building for the rebellion solaris one what kind of yeah what it sounds like it sounds like the tour one just came you know almost sort of came out fully formed whereas this one maybe was it sort of you know did it take longer to build the world and to yeah to kind of see it to kind of see it yeah specifically to see it uh for the butcher of the forest i saw that one really really clearly not just because i'd seen that initial image in the dream and just kind of had to extrapolate from that Um, But for this one, it was like, well, I know I'm writing a war novel, but what kind, what kind of war is it? Where is it taking place? Um, How is it unusual compared to other wars I've, say, written or, or read about or seen in movies? Um, You know, this isn't really enemy at the gates, but, you know, it's also not all quiet on the Western Front. And it's... um, I think what I wanted to focus on was the idea that although war touches everything in a country, um, you know, or, or the countries that are participating, uh, the war isn't happening everywhere in the country generally. So there's quite a bit of the book, um, which you'll have seen if you're reading it, um, where, where Alifret and, and Couture are moving through a landscape that's been, you know, destroyed by the war or damaged by the war. Um, they're occasionally encountering people mm-hmm. uh, who have survived the, the fighting, but technically the fighting's over. So all that's left now is the aftermath and just this very distinct lack of, of rebuilding. It's almost the, the end of the world for some of these places. They'll, they'll never go back to what they were. They're well aware that all the people there will just have to move. They can't live there anymore. So it's, you know, it's obviously it's an anti-war novel, but it's also trying to think about the the knock-on effects of the fighting itself and and what happens to civilians and and who gets to live and who gets drafted into the fighting and who just gets you know picked on yeah 
and you said you were writing that as as the war was going on in Ukraine. Yeah, I think I, I'm trying to remember the date. I think I had to hand it in May 31st. And all that started sometime in like March or something like that. Uh, I didn't go back and change anything in the book, but it was just, it was constantly on my mind as I was, as I was finishing just, oh, I, I hope I'm not writing, you know, disrespectfully or flippantly about war. I don't think I am, but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think so at all. And I think it's always, yeah, but that, that is always the, the question, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly when... When you when when you started something before and then mm-hmm. something happens in the middle. Um, the 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 blurb for that one for the siege of burning grass, which is out in March twenty twenty four, also describes you as a rising star of the genre. <laughs> Who wrote that? <laughs> that was probably my editor. <laughs> but the um, but the question is, yeah, rising star of which genre? It doesn't specify. <laughs> Uh, I don't think I'm a rising star. Uh, if I was, I would be able to pay my bills. But <laughs> I think we're just, we're going to have to say speculative fiction. Uh, I write so much stuff that is science fiction, touching fantasy or fantasy elements in science fiction or or horror mm-hmm. elements smushed into all of the above. I mean, look at, and what can we offer you tonight? Um, you know, which won the World Fantasy Award, which won the Nebula Award. Right. It's set in a far future mm-hmm. dystopia with various sci-fi trappings, like location tracking watches that are embedded into your skin. And also there's a dead woman who's brought back to life for reasons we have no clue about, and it's never gone into. That's basically magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> For sure, and then your your rebellion novella, you know, you, you could also, you know, is also uh, has has speculative or you know SF trappings, but also has, you know, uh, you know lots of elements from other genres. Yeah, I, I like it when genres touch, and I was grateful when I learned the term speculative fiction because I thought, there we go, you know, that's that's the big umbrella we can put everything in. We don't have to call something sci-fi, we don't have to call something fantasy. We can just say it's speculative. <laughs> Uh, sticking with genre you um in 2020 you wrote an essay for nightmare magazine called the 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 h word uh, an empathy of fear and you wrote there this great this great line you wrote, um fear guides more of our behavior than we can be consciously aware of and um and you look at how you know fear comes into play in all sorts of different ways in different genres and you also quote tony morrison um and the quote is, uh, isn't the brutality of your fellow humans scary too? And yeah, I wonder sort of is is your, is this sort of fascination with human behavior and with fear a thread that you see running through a lot of your work? Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I think I do. I don't know if it's always entirely on purpose. Like, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll get uh, solicited to write something and they'll be like, you know, this is a this is a horror magazine or this is a horror anthology. So make sure that that fear, like you're talking about, is sort of very, you know, foremost. But I think also in just my normal writing, um, where I'm not trying to make it horror, right. uh, what I am thinking about in terms of character development is not so much what does the character want um, or what is the character's goal for this story, but what do the characters fear? And if they have a goal, why do they fear not getting it? What do they fear happening to them if they fail? 
And I, I tend to start to construct my characters from that point, from what they're afraid of, um, rather than what they desire. Mm-hmm. So that also gets to feed into what all the villains or the antagonistic forces are doing, which is you know, whether they're doing it deliberately or not, um, playing on that fear, intensifying that fear, creating that fear if they can to get what they want. Uh-huh. That's 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 really interesting. Going for going for the fears, not the desires, and 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 also in a, in in this new story, imagine yourself happy. Was that on your mind as well? The fear. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Um, because clearly, the the unnamed narrator is working with something hugely dangerous. We see quick mentions of the safety protocols that they have in place. Um, he knows he's made a mistake, and that's right. The thing he's feared the whole time is is making a mistake. And we also see something I think a little more subtle, which is that he fears or feared dying without contributing what he felt was kind of his fair share to science or to the future. And I think in this story, he actually gains a little bit of um a little bit of solace, a little bit of comfort, maybe a little bit of peace from the way that he's dying, because he thinks that, you know, hey, even if I did make this mistake, even if this is the end of my life, I am contributing to science. That's the last thing I'm going to do. And I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there is, yes, yeah, the, 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 there is solace there. The, uh, the oof, your, your third book of 2024, um, third that I know of, third so far, <laughs> is a follow-up to The Annual Migration of Clouds. And it has another splendid title, We Speak Through the Mountain. Uh, the publication date for that is June 2024. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, kind of picking up on the, <laughs> maybe on, on, on the negatives, sorry, but it, it, the blurb for this one says uh, that you ask in the book whether humanity is doomed to forever recreate its worst mistakes. <laughs> and, and I suppose without spoiling the book, um, do, do you think we are? Yes. Oh, I guess I can elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 we can see. I mean, we could just cut it right there. <laughs> we can just cut it right there. Uh, yeah, we are. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're we're watching it happen right now. We're watching it happen every day. Mm. We haven't learned a thing from COVID. Um, about one person dies per day here in Alberta, where I live, from COVID. Uh. We've got the vaccines. We've got masks. We've got nasal sprays. We've got social distancing. We've got... Uh, every tool that we should have to have ended the epidemic and it's still going on. And same with, I think, a lot of other really large scale things, um, you know, the, the ongoing climate disaster, uh, hostilities worldwide, um, things that we have the tools and the knowledge to fix. And we know we do, but we're doing the exact same thing we've been doing for centuries. <laughs> yes. Which I guess makes for a slightly depressing uh, book, but I still, you know, I found it. I found. I guess I shouldn't have found it so strange. But when the annual migration of clouds came out in 2021, um, it was immediately kind of slotted into climate fiction or eco fiction, and I thought that was so strange because I thought it was quite clear that what I had written was a disability book, uh, was a book about a disease. Mm-hmm. But instead, what everybody fixated on was the setting. Right. And I thought, well, that. That definitely won't happen again. And then ECW came back to me and was like, hey, we would like some sequels. And I was like, oh, so they do want more climate fiction. And it's specifically climate fiction that I have been asked to write. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Okay. So, 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 so in that case, in that case, kind of like, like, like reactions or, or the way it was pitched sort of fed back into the, in, into the sort of the, the longer story. That's fascinating. Very much so. Yeah. When like the book was very, very much written as a standalone, I wanted, uh, and insisted on that very open ending. I wanted for people to not know what happened to the character at the end. I wanted for a lot of the questions in the story to deliberately go unanswered forever. Uh, but I also have bills to pay. So when they, <laughs> right. when they uh, asked about two more books, I was like, yeah, okay, I'll write two more books. I, I, I'm not sticking to my guns that hard. You said earlier that about the rising star bit in the blurb. <laughs> I don't know who wrote it, um, but but you know, yeah. If you know, you you it doesn't feel maybe like that in terms of yeah, you know, the bills to pay. Do do you feel like um, yeah? I I I mean, this is something we kind of touched on in in earlier interviews where where you know talked about you know the state of how how publishing supports writers and and just generally how hard it is did d does it still feel as hard as it felt you know a year two three years ago in terms of oh much harder much harder much harder because back then there was this kind of sense of i guess uncertainty like you know oh what are my what are my books going to do am i ever going to get another book deal um how are they going to sell and now with a couple of years of you know not just the knowledge but also the, uh, the royalty reports, uh, being able to look at the actual numbers. Um, you know, just as an example, this year, 2023, uh, as of end of September, 2023, the total amount of royalties that I've made off all my books uh, is $3,500 Canadian. So, you know, I'm not exactly swimming in money. <laughs> so it, it does, you know, that's that to me, that's kind of confirmation that, um, my perception that I'm writing things that people don't want to read is sort of being borne out by the numbers and sort of being like, you know, all the books that I've sold for all of, you know, half of 2022 and part of 2023 does not even cover a month of my bills. Hmm. Um, I'm going to have to go out and get a day job again because I'm not writing things that are, you know, the big commercial bestsellers. But um, yeah, I guess we'll we'll see what happens after... 2024 which is the year of four possibly five books <laughs> I, I suppose you're yeah you, you, it's almost like you're running a scientific experiment where you're sort of okay so if I if I publish five books in this period of time you know what is the outcome what is the, what are the results yeah what is the outcome you know because the advances also have been the advances have been fairly low like right. nothing to write home about uh so you know I really am counting hmm. on royalties but uh yeah and I'm, I'm even excited about that fourth book, which we haven't talked about, but that's going to be, I keep calling it a novella. It's actually not just a novella. It's going to be a mini collection with Psychopomp Press. Oh. So that's going to be a new novella called One Message Remains, plus a reprint of my story, The General's Turn, which was in the Deadlands, and two new uh, novelettes. So I'm pretty excited for that. I also had a friend today ask me if um, The Siege of Burning Grass, which he's reading for a blurb, uh, which, thank you, Jonathan, um, is actually in the same world as um, The General's Turn. And I was like, oh, um, <laughs> not on purpose, but I do seem to be writing about two countries in an endless, pointless war right. a lot lately. <laughs> so, so they could, they could be, maybe. They could, they could very easily be. I don't think they're in the same time period because 
just as an example, in the general's turn, they've only just gotten electricity. But um, and I don't think they're in the same area. But I see I see them as being in the same world now that he mentioned it. Ah, okay. <laughs> the power the power of feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you find yourself? Uh, do you find certain worlds or certain characters that you've written uh, sort of? Yeah, not so much coming back to haunt you, but do you find yourself drawn back into them and thinking about other stories? Oh, yeah, constantly, constantly, constantly. Um, I, I keep having to stop myself from simply making every story I write, you know, a prequel or a sequel or a sidequel of, of something else that I wrote. <laughs> um, you even see it a little bit in um, my short story collection where I uh, there are two worlds, uh, two stories set in the same world. There's The Evaluator and there's Us and Ours, which are happening at almost the same time. So, so, so that's the fourth one. You mentioned the psychopomp one, and um, uh, the fifth one. Can can you hint that, or is that? Yeah, I can hint. Um, possibly, uh, if I can't talk them into moving it into twenty twenty five, because of course, at this rate, I'll have four novellas all competing against each other for any award slots, if there are any. Um, <laughs> it, it would be nicer to just have three competing against each other for the slots. But um, yeah, this is uh, this would be a novella uh, with a small press, which hasn't been announced, and which actually I still have to hand in. It's actually due mid uh, November, um, and this I I think we're going to have to go ahead and call it a weird western. Oh, that's good. Okay. So it's like, yeah. So it's a bit. Um, it's a bit the unforgiven with mm, cosmic horror. The unforgiven with cosmic. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Look, looking forward to that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I hope people enjoy this one. It's it's not very much my usual thing, but uh, you know, I've always really wanted to write a slightly longer form western, not necessarily a novel. I don't think I can hold up a novel, but um, you know, I, th I thought it would be interesting to at least try it in novella form. And as you pointed out in our email exchange, I have a story coming out in an anthology called mm. Playlist of the Damned. Right. Um, that is also it's this is a western story as well. It's called I Am He. So that's an, an, another Western. And, and that jogs my memory. You have the, you, um, you have another story in the MIT collection, which is, uh, is it, is it AI related? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That story is called, uh, at every door a ghost. And, uh, it's actually kicked off by the usual sci-fi tradition, I guess we'd call it of a technology that humanity has developed that we think is going to be great. And it's going to help us and fix everything going terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, for reasons we are not 100% sure of. Um, and what really triggers the story, is, you know, it's focused on a small cast of academics, um, researchers. And what, what really kicks off the story is that there is a worldwide pact for people to stop working on certain types of um, actual artificial intelligence uh, because they've seen what went wrong uh -huh. with this one. Uh, but of course, it doesn't really answer the question of how do you shut down an artificial intelligence if it has achieved something close enough to sentience to um, prevent you from doing that. And if it is no longer actually contained. Yeah, if it's not contained. Yeah. So that that's asking a question I hope we never have to answer. But Right. <laughs> I, I have another AI-related story actually coming out in uh, an Apex anthology, I think in like just a week or two here. Um, called The Robots Live Here Now. 
And uh, yeah, it's, it's, this is a cute little story. This is about um, two kids trying to find out if they're, they're playing this very sort of old buggy city builder game, uh-huh. almost like SimCity. Okay. And uh, they become friends with another player. And this other player all of a sudden tells them that they're an AI. So the kids are trying to find out if that's true or not. And I think it's a cute little story. <laughs> and, and that's in an Apex anthology. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's it's playlist of the damned is the one anthology, and it's the the MIT when yeah. I'm blanking on the title. Um, uh, Twelve tomorrows is the series. I think this one's called Communications Breakdown. And yeah, so 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 lots and lots of different premium Mohammed stories to look for. Oh, also sorry, and uh, the reinvented detective, which is coming out in December. Uh, there's an AI story in that. The, the, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that one's edited by uh, Jennifer Brozek and Cat Rambo, and I think that's coming out mid December, like December twelfth. Oh right! Oh, 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 they they edited. A, have they? What was the one that was? In, um, Kelly Jennings reviewed that one. Uh, that may have been the reinvented heart, which I was also in. <laughs> Kelly liked that one. Um, one one more plug. I, I was on NetGalley and I saw um, w- one more plug after all the short stories, and I saw that ECW Press are bringing out an audiobook of um, and what can we offer you tonight which I didn't realize was on its way. Yes. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. It's, um, when I talked about that with my agent, uh, when we talked about shopping around audio rights, he said, well, for novellas, it can be kind of a hard sell because there's not really enough audio running time to make it hmm. you know, economical for someone to offer you a lot of money for the rights. It's different with a novel. But, um, you know, we did talk to ECW. Uh, they do have their own audiobook uh, group. I think it's called Bespoke Audio. And even though that novella is so short, it's like 21,000 words, so less than three hours of audio, uh, they still took it on. And I think they did a fantastic job. Hmm. That's, yeah, I, I, I it's on, it's, it's, it's in the NetGalley app, so I'm hoping to listen to it soon. I, 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 oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, I'm keen, because I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm keen to I'm keen to see how that one because I I think I think I I think what happens is I tend to read your stories in twos so I I read these lifeless things and then maybe <laughs> almost right afterwards read and what can we offer you tonight and they're such different books mm-hmm. and then I sort of feel like I have to sort of like I want to go back to them and sort of like you know put space between them if that makes sense oh but yeah that's really interesting yeah I liked the uh, I liked the audio version of these lifeless things as well because that has two narrators in text and then when Solaris did it they also hired two different narrators to read the two different voices. So I was very pleased they did that. Is is that world, um, these these lifeless things, is, is that world a world that sort of you you feel is sort of like the doors closed, it's sort of, it's you know, it's self-contained or is that also one of those ones where you feel there's more story maybe? Lots more story. Uh, there is at least one other story set in that world, uh, which didn't make it into the short story collection. My editor cut that out, but that was... Um, from uh, the Sockdolager, and it was uh, Antsneer of Cold Command, which is basically a sidequel to these lifeless things because it's happening at the same time. And actually in Lifeless, they mention um, some of the events that happen at the end of Sneer, uh, the fireworks specifically. So More story there. Yeah. <laughs> more story there. Lots more story there. The preemiverse. Um <laughs> The um, I I really enjoyed your own reading of um, episode four, the deflection of probability, which was on Story Hour. That was a great reading. Uh, you you've got this really kind of like it was a really kind of pleasant, chilled out reading. And then you, oh thank you. You did a 
a story that, that I think I listened to twice, almost back to back, and it was it was as well as the Infirm by Scott Beggs, which was which was a great reading of yours for Pseudopod. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Thank you. Yeah, I I don't do a ton of narration, but I remember that one. That one was very very yeah squishy and gory and yeah. <laughs> what was the line at the end? Like a, a skull full of teeth or something? Something like that. And yeah, so that that one. Do do check that one out. That's um. Uh, as well as The Infirm by Scott Beggs and also The Deflection of Probability, which is, was that originally a skate pod? Yeah, that was originally a skate pod. They bought that one. And, 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 and the question I had was, like, when you're, are you listening when you write? Like when you draft or edit, do you, are you hearing yourself or your narrators telling the story? Yeah, that's, um, and again, I was just talking about this with a friend. Um, when, when she writes, she basically sees... Um, like images, sometimes moving, sometimes not. And then she describes them. So she told me, you know, I've always had a very tough time with dialogue because the images, you know, no one's talking. <laughs> okay. And then for me, I'm actually very much the other way. It's all, uh, it's all language. It's all words. And what takes me a while often is figuring out what a place looks like or what a structure or a building mm. looks like or you know, like in, in Butcher, I don't think Varys is even described as looking like anything, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in the annual migration of clouds, I have no I have no mental image of what Reed looks like. And she narrates the entire book. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> so you hear her, you hear her, but you couldn't play sort of like cast the character. I hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear it really quite, quite clearly for a lot of stories. And sometimes I feel like I'm just sort of you know, tilting my head a little bit like a puppy trying to listen mm. and then I'm just writing it down. <laughs> oh, that, that really chimes with me because I do feel that with the reading your, reading your stories, I do feel that, that, that kind of sensitivity to voice and that kind of, as I mentioned earlier on, that sort of, that, that kind of pu pulling voices out and then the, the distinctiveness between them, I think is, is what, yeah, what I just find so enjoyable. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I was just um, re-listening to part of um, a pseudopod recording, uh, Four Hours of a Revolution, which was narrated by Alistair Stewart's dad, Ian Stewart. And I just, I love the the work that they did turning that into audio because I did have kind of a, you know, that mental image of what the voice of death sounded like in my head. And then they chose Ian as the narrator. And I thought this is absolutely and completely perfect. This <laughs> you know this just jives exactly exactly with how i would have narrated it except i can't because i don't sound like that so <laughs> i thought they just did a wonderful job on that story just elevated it so much from the text that's great uh, and and that uh, people can find that where uh that's on pseudopod uh the episode is called four hours of a revolution okay four hours of the revolution yeah um and, and and the last question kind of wrapping up um is there is there anything you want to signal boost by other people or anything you've kind of really enjoyed that you want to mention oh gosh um almost almost too much to uh to think about right now but i think in general short fiction venues are having a really hard time so i would encourage listeners to um see if they can find it in their budget to manage a yearly subscription to a short fiction venue or to or to support them on their patreon because there are a lot that are going to go under probably in the next couple of years and they can't uh survive without without loyal readers and and paying readers yeah yeah definitely 
Yeah, and I'd kind of add to that sort of as 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 an editor, a publisher of a magazine, I would say that for absolutely yes, the, the, the subscriptions or you know uh, joining a page a Patreon or even just sending a one-off donation, but but also uh, talk about the stories you love as much as possible everywhere mm-hmm. just like tell people about them if you can or or, or boost them because they're, they're, there are so many and sort of what I hear from readers sometimes is that sort of filtering you know filtering out you know which stories are going to connect and with short fiction in particular it's the same with books and the same with everything but yeah you know recommendations really do make a huge difference mm-hmm. word of mouth makes a huge difference especially when there's you know 50 short stories coming out a day people have to yell about their favorites yeah <laughs> There are so many, <laughs> so many short stories, <laughs> um, including yours, which is a great way to circle circle back to imagine yourself happy. Yeah. Oh, nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so so uh, lots and lots of things to look forward to. Uh, thank thank you very much for for coming on for coming on the show, and uh, I hope we can talk again the next time you have something out, which or or, or soon anyway. That would be great. That would be great. Thank you so, so much, Gareth. This was awesome. You've been listening to Interzone Pod with me, Gareth Jelly, and my guest, Premi Mohammed. Subscribe to Interzone at interzone.press and read stories for free at Interzone's online sister zine, IZ Digital. Thanks for listening.